For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Oklahoma City, which is often shortened to OKC, is the state capital and largest city in Oklahoma. With almost 700,000 residents, it is the 22nd largest city in the United States based on population. It began as the home to several tribal nations, and the city remains steeped in Native American and Western culture, embracing its roots even as it moves forward as a center of innovation and entrepreneurship. Oil, natural gas, petroleum products, and related industries are the economy's largest sector. OKC is also in the center of what is colloquially called Tornado Alley because it is one of the most... <laughs> that is impressive, Kathy. I was like, I got to bust it out. Colloquially, see if I can... <laughs> that's, I like that. That's a $5 word. <laughs> because it is one of the most tornado-prone areas in the world. Recently, Travel and Leisure magazine named Oklahoma City one of the best places to travel, even though most people still associate the city with the 1995 bombing of the Murrah Federal Building. However, many years prior, in 1978, residents suffered through the worst mass murder the state had seen up to that point. On Wednesday, June 21, 1978, 38-year-old Melvin Lorenz and his wife Linda and his 12-year-old son Ricky were driving to North Dakota from their home in Texas. Melvin's family called earlier in the day to let him know that his mother had passed away. Melvin and Linda were both sergeants in the U.S. Air Force and stationed at Lachlan Air Force Base in San Antonio. Melvin's 12-year-old son, Ricky, from a previous marriage, was with them, riding in the camper shell over the bed of their pickup truck, along with their two large dogs. Which is something you did in the 70s. <laughs> and sometimes you didn't even have the camper shell on. <laughs> I have a distinct recollection of being taken to Knott's Berry Farm with my mother and her friend. All of the kids were in the bed of the pickup truck. I was probably nine, which meant my youngest sister was like six. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> and there was no camper shell. There were a total of seven kids. Exactly. No camper shell in the back of a pickup truck. It was better than a station wagon. Yeah. And it was like, you better not stand up in this thing. And that was it. And then we were all, off we went. <laughs> well, they were smoking and drinking martinis in the cab. <laughs> Linda Lorenz spoke with her sister, Joan, about 5 p.m. the day they left, letting her know they were packing and planning to get on the road as soon as possible. Spiritwood, North Dakota, which is where Melvin's family lived, is almost directly north of San Antonio, but it's a 21-hour drive. Melvin was known for always driving straight through. What is it about men that like to do that? I, I don't get that. I have that. no idea. Yeah, and, and they don't stop for bathrooms. Exactly. <laughs> they stopped at a truck stop on Interstate. Ah, they stopped for a bathroom. I'm just exactly. kidding. <laughs> exactly. So they stopped at a truck stop on Interstate 35 just outside of Winville, Oklahoma, for food and gas in the early morning hours of June 22nd, 
about eight hours into their trip to North Dakota. Okay, that makes more sense. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) He finally let his wife go to the bathroom. Right. (laughs) They bought some gas, donuts, and then walked their dogs. Ricky was sleeping in the camper. About 12 hours later, around noon on Thursday, a truck driver traveling Interstate 35 saw two bodies lying in the grass just off the shoulder of the road. This was just south of Oklahoma City. The trucker pulled over to see if they were okay. When he saw the people had been shot, he called police and waited for their arrival. Police arrived at the grisly scene and were eventually able to identify the bodies as Melvin and Linda Lorenz. Melvin had been shot once in the head. Linda had been shot three times in the back. Their son, Ricky, their two dogs, and the truck were missing. Police immediately put out an APB for the 1975 dark blue pickup with a white camper shell. Ricky, who had already undergone open-heart surgery twice in his young life, was considered to be in fragile health. He was described as 4 foot 5 inches tall, weighing 60 pounds, with blue eyes and blonde hair. Melvin and Linda's family held out hope that Ricky would be found safe. These hopes were dashed the next day when Ricky's body was found about 20 feet off the shoulder of Interstate 35, about a half a mile north from where the bodies of his father and stepmother were found. The reason it looks like he wasn't discovered earlier Mm -hmm. is that whereas the parents were kind of just off the shoulder, the grass that Ricky was found in was significantly taller, so it wasn't as easy to spot a body. They Mm -hmm. were actually looking for him at this point. Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigations was asked to assist. OSBI special agents investigate major crimes when asked by local agencies. Investigators determined that Ricky was killed by a single gunshot wound to the chest and also suffered a wound to his left hand. OSBI agents speculated that he may have jerked his arm up to protect himself as the gun was fired. Police were able to identify him by the scars on his chest left from open-heart surgery. Investigators theorize that Ricky may have been asleep in the camper when his parents were shot and might not have been noticed by the killer until the boy awakened. Autopsies later confirmed that the family was killed between 4 and 6 a.m. on Thursday, June 22, 1978. Two days after the Lorenz family murders, police in Dallas, Texas, let Oklahoma City authorities know they arrested two men in a routine drug bust and found property in their motel room that matched the description of property said to have been taken from the Lorenz family. Two women who were staying with the men who were arrested told police that the four of them arrived in Dallas on Friday night from Oklahoma. According to Dallas police, one of the men escaped from a prison farm in Texas and the other man was a wanted fugitive for four years for violating his parole on an armed robbery conviction. The men were believed to be responsible for robberies in at least four states. Police also found two 38 caliber revolvers, which were the same caliber of bullet used in the slaying of the Lorenz family. Neither of the weapons had serial numbers. When police entered the men's identities into the National Crime Index computer... The computer returned eight pages of outstanding warrants between the two men. Wow. They were catches. Did the women know this? (laughs) Exactly. Those lucky ladies. (laughs) 
After further investigation, the property believed to have belonged to the Lorenzes was actually not the family's property. While these clowns remained in custody, (laughs) the search for the killer continued. Clowns they were. (laughs) Four days after the murders of the Lorenz family, police found the Lorenz's blue and white pickup at a motel by the Oklahoma City airport. The motel staff member who alerted police said she first noticed the truck Friday evening, which was the day after the murders, because she heard dogs barking inside. It was not until Monday that she realized it fit the description of the truck police were looking for. OSBI agents found bloodstains in the cab of the truck, a spent 38 caliber shell on the truck's floor, and a live 38 caliber round in the door of the driver's side. Now, the funny thing was it wasn't actually in the door or hadn't been shot through the door. The unspent cartridge was resting right where the window is. Like, in other words, if the windows rolled down, it creates that groove. Right, exactly. And that's where it was resting. That is very random. Dried blood was also found on the top and bottom of the truck's tailgate. Police also found a rifle in the truck. Investigators said that it appeared the two dogs had clawed their way through the screen of the camper shelves left rear window, which had been left open. For all of you who love dogs as much as I do, you'll be very happy to hear that the dogs were later found safe and unharmed. Ruff, ruff. (laughs) That wasn't one of them. (laughs) On July 16th, 1978, more than three weeks after the Lorenz family had been killed, Oklahoma City police attention shifted to a new tragedy. That night, Oklahoma City experienced the worst homicide incident in its history up to that point. Six employees of a steakhouse were killed execution style during a robbery. The murders were discovered by an assistant manager, Michael Click, who left the Sirloin Stockade Steakhouse about 8 p.m., but he returned at 10.30 that same night to call in the closing sales numbers as he always did on Sunday nights. When he arrived, he thought it was odd because all of the lights in the restaurant were off, but all of the employees' cars were still in the parking lot. Mr. Click went inside and found all of the employees inside the restaurant's freezer. The bodies of two men, three teenage boys, and one teenage girl were stacked on top of each other. All had been shot once in the head at close range. The girl, 16-year-old Terry Horst, was also shot in the stomach. The girl was alive, but barely, and they had to pull two others off of her to get her out. She was quickly rushed to the hospital, but died a few hours later without ever regaining consciousness. Oklahoma City Police Sergeant Tom Mundy said that the obvious motive was robbery after it was discovered that somewhere between $1,200 and $1,500 was taken from the restaurant's safe. It appeared that all of the employees were taken into the freezer at the same time and killed individually. None of them were bound or gagged. Sergeant Monday also said that several weapons were used during the shootings, and police believed there was more than one suspect. Police Chief Tom Hagee told reporters that a clinical psychologist agreed to develop a psychological profile of the killer or killers in an attempt to get leads on who might have committed these crimes. Two days after the killings, police questioned two men in connection with the murders. 
The first man owned a car similar to one seen in the parking lot on the night of the killings. The other man was brought in after his wife told police she thought he was involved in the killings. <laughs> Thanks, honey. <laughs> we have a happy marriage, right? I know. It's like, how was your day, dear? Oh, it was great. I went to the cops and I told them that you're a murderer. <laughs> Where's the checkbook, though? Exactly. <laughs> Okay, what's funny is that the two men were given a polygraph, which they passed, but the wife was also given a polygraph to confirm the truthfulness of her claim, and she passed that as well. So she wasn't just mad at him for something. She was a little cray-cray. Probably, probably. Anyway, the men were released after they passed the polygraph, and there was no other evidence connecting them to the murders in any way. And when was the divorce lawyer called? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Shortly thereafter. (laughs) Three days after the murders at the steakhouse, police said the evidence they gathered indicated there were a total of three suspects. Two of the suspects were described as shooters, while they believed a third suspect was only involved in the robbery. Detectives said they hoped the third suspect would come forward and assist the police. At this point, police also released that they were investigating six different suspects, but that none of them had been arrested. On July 20th, 1978, so four days after the Sirloin Stockade murders, Oklahoma City Police Chief Tom Heggie issued an open letter to the third person police believed was at the scene, but not directly involved in the shootings. He offered a $50,000 reward and protection if they came forward to identify the killers. And this was interesting. They ran this in the newspapers throughout Oklahoma. It's entitled, An Open Letter to a Mystery Witness. We do not yet know your name, but we will. You are the key to the solution of the worst murder in our city's history. We know that you have seen or heard something and that you want to tell us the truth. If you were present when Six died and did not pull the trigger, you are not a killer. If you have been told about the crime, you have nothing to fear from us. But you are in danger! These men have killed at least six times, coldly and without feeling. They will not hesitate to kill again because they must remain free and undetected. The penalty they face is monumental. If you know them and what they did, you will almost certainly be their next victim if only to ensure your silence. I stand ready to meet with you at the time and place of your choosing. In addition to the rightness of your act in coming forward, you will receive a $50,000 reward upon arrest and conviction of the true killers. In all caps, your safety will be assured. And then I await your call at, and gave his phone number, signed Tom L. Heggie, Chief of Police. That's pretty incredible. It really is. And it's incredibly well written, too. It is. And where it says, if you have been told about the crime, you have nothing to fear from us. In other words, what he's saying is, if you were the guy sitting in the car being the getaway driver and had no idea that this was going to go down and they subsequently told you, you're okay. You're yeah. safe. You know, Chief Heggie said that while the letter guarantees reward money and protection, it does not guarantee immunity from prosecution because any immunity deals would have to come from the district attorney. He also said that hypnosis was going to be tried on some of the witnesses in an attempt to see if they could get more information. Mr. Click, the assistant manager at the Sirloin Stockade who found the bodies, already underwent hypnosis And they were reaching out to people who had been in the restaurant that night or waiting in the parking lot to see if any of them would be willing to submit to hypnosis. 
you know, it's kind of funny. They're like, we're not going to guarantee that you're not going to be prosecuted, but we're going to give you 50 grand. (laughs) You might need it as bail money. Exactly. (laughs) Dr. Vernon Sisney prepared a psychological profile for the police, predicting that the killers came from a poor background with little concern for human life. The report also said that they are likely 20 to 30 years old with little education and probably poor dressers. That cracked me up. (laughs) Definitely a sign of the times. Exactly. I mean, seriously, I mean, people did dress nicer. Well, I think it's funny because it's not the 50s or 60s when men and women wore like suits and dresses onto airplanes. Right. But he was probably older and still judged people based on what they were wearing. Exactly. Exactly. It was a few short years from the days when men wore hats and ties outside just because. Right. He also said at least one of them probably had a police record and may have been in prison. Dr. Sisney also said the gunmen were probably very experienced with guns, excellent shots, and may have learned to kill in the military. Almost two weeks after the murders, Oklahoma City police detectives said that the investigation had not narrowed the leads in the search for the suspects. Chief Tom Heggie said that if the investigation continued into a third week, the police department would have to reevaluate the case, which included a review of all of the evidence investigators compiled since the six bodies had been discovered in the restaurant's freezer. According to an article by journalist Dan Manley in The Daily Oklahoman, on September 6, 1978, nearly two months after the mass murder at the Sirloin Stockade, OSBI Director Tom Kennedy announced that Oklahoma City Police received a call from a resident who lived in northeast Oklahoma City to report that they had found three guns on their property hidden in some trees. Now, it wasn't the resident himself who found the guns, but it was a bunch of kids. Playing in the area? It was his son and then a bunch of his friends playing in the area. Oh, how funny. Remember when you were little and you used to get involved in shenanigans and you never told your parents about it? I totally would have, like found these guns and been like, I better not tell my mom because I'm going to get in trouble. (laughs) And when I say she's a bad influence, you would have kept guns from your parents. (laughs) All sorts of things happen in my childhood that when I look back, I'm like, why did I not tell my mom about that? One of the guns recovered was a 38 caliber revolver. The police were able to determine that the revolver had been stolen from a pawn shop. But when they did ballistics on the shell casings, They were able to determine that the casings were consistent with the Sirloin Stockade murders and the murders of Melvin, Linda, and Ricky Lorenz. Dun, 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 dun. Exactly. Yeah. One of the other guns found by the children was a Colt Magnum. Based on conversations with Melvin Lorenz's family members, investigators knew that Melvin carried a Colt Magnum with him when he traveled and police did not find one at the scene or in the recovered truck. Ballistics tests proved that this was the other weapon used to murder the six workers at the steakhouse. These two discoveries were the first major breakthrough in the investigation and provided the first clue that the two mass murders were connected. Now, Kath, I didn't read anywhere whether they found something on the third gun. I'm assuming they did not. I'm assuming the same thing because it wasn't mentioned other than that there were three guns and that they were able to tie these two to the murders. Okay. Unfortunately, OSBI agents did not find any fingerprints on any of the guns. Now that the two murder investigations were being combined, police increased the overall reward money to $61,500, which included the $50,000 reward offered for the steakhouse murders, as well as 
$11,500, which had been offered for the Lorenz family murders. On the heels of the Oklahoma City Police Chief Heggie's letter to the suspected third participant in the mass murders, OSBI Director Kennedy issued a similar appeal to the unknown burglar of the pawn shop to turn himself over to authorities. Kennedy said it was now obvious that the person or persons who committed the pawn shop burglary, remember that's where they found the 38, was either directly involved in both crimes or at least knew who was. The statement from the director also repeated Heggie's letter that the person's life was probably in extreme danger from the killers because they knew too much. Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie, and even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange, and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. <laughs> so if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash killer D. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In January of 1979, based on a witness who saw three people in a truck similar to the Lorenz's, the OSBI released three composite sketches of two men and one woman who were considered suspects. So, Kath, this witness came forward pretty early on after the Lorenz murders, but he was discounted because he saw these people 100 miles from the scene of the murder And it was only estimated that the murder had happened, let's say, four to six hours previously. So the agent didn't believe that 
these crooks, these murderers, would be able to travel 100 miles in such a short amount of time. And so they blew him off, but later circled back and said, hey, can you come in and let's try to create some composite sketches? So that's what they did, and these were the sketches that were released to the public. It turns out that the letter published in the newspapers by Oklahoma City Police Chief Heggie and OSBI Director Kennedy was successful. The third suspect in the steakhouse murders who did not shoot the victims came forward. Based on the information provided, the OSBI and the Oklahoma City Police Department announced that nine first-degree murder warrants were being drawn up against Roger Dale Stafford, who was 27 years old. They did not have Stafford in custody, nor did they know his whereabouts. Oklahoma City Police Lieutenant Dennis Berglund said the OSBI received an anonymous phone call from a truck driver within the first 10 minutes after the composite drawings of the suspect were released. The truck driver apparently picked up these three people who matched the descriptions and was able to give police names. Which cracks me up. I mean, it's funny to me, you know, I could see a truck driver picking up three people going, hey, hop in, I'll give you a ride. But it's funny to me that he remembered their names. Well, and that they gave the right names. Yeah. Two months after the sketches were released, they were able to trace the female to Chicago, and she provided detectives with information that only the killers would know. Police said that the person who turned themselves in was the driver of the getaway vehicle at both murder scenes and was married to one of the two men. But the name of the person was not being released, and they were in protective custody at an Oklahoma City motel. Although authorities did not divulge at the time which man she was married to, it was later revealed that her name was Verna Stafford, and she was the wife of Roger Stafford. Now, interestingly, Kathy, and this is super sad, Verna was 26 at the time and had been married to Roger for seven years and had three children, mm-hmm. all under the age of five. Ugh. Now, remember, the murders took place in June and July of 1978. Right. The children were with them. Oh, my goodness. She did not surrender the kids until October of 1978, at which point she handed them over to Child Protective Services because she could no longer care for them. But I mean, this is after she had already. This is this is right. This was months after the murder. So even before she came forward to the police, she had given her kids up. Yes. She had to because she wasn't able to take care of them. She and Roger had apparently split. And I'm assuming that just means locationally. Right. So she didn't have any money coming in and wasn't able to get a job. That is awful. Now, the third suspect, so the second male suspect, was identified as Harold Ray Stafford, the older brother of Roger Stafford. But they were not looking for him because he died in a motorcycle accident in Tulsa, Oklahoma, six days after the killings at the Sirloin Stockade. Now, in talking to family members later, they actually said they thought it was a suicide because he drove his motorcycle at top speed down an interstate in the wrong lane. So in other words, the police didn't think it was a suicide. His family did. Yeah, his family Ah. did. The police didn't know. Actually, I don't even know if the police ruled on it. I don't know if they knew he was drunk or what have you. But they said he was the sensitive soul of the group, which doesn't really Mm -hmm. mean anything. We're going to put that in quotes. Exactly. (laughs) Perfect. But he ran head on into another car. He was going so fast that he actually flew off the bike and went for 69 feet before he hit the pavement. That is ugly. That is ugly. Four days after the Oklahoma authorities announced they were looking for Roger Stafford for the nine murders, 
Stafford was arrested by Chicago police after he attempted to contact a relative who then tipped the police off. Stafford waived extradition and told police he wanted to get back to Oklahoma so he could clear his name. Two days after he was returned to Oklahoma, he was arraigned on one count of first-degree murder for the killing of 16-year-old Terry Horst. Now, Kath, I didn't read anything, and I don't know if you did, about why the other victims weren't included in this. I didn't see anything either, and I thought it was strange because if you charged for one, why would you not charge for all six? Honestly, I, I don't know. But it was kind of funny. So Stafford was assigned a public defender, but unbeknownst to him, his brother-in-law hired this attorney named Gary Dean. So Gary Dean shows up in court and, you know, he starts making a fuss like, I'm his lawyer and I want to talk to him and blah, 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 blah. But Stafford already had an attorney of record, the public defender, right? So at one of the hearings, Gary Dean shows up in an attempt to speak with Stafford, okay? The district attorney told the officers to remove the defendant from the courtroom. The officers thought he was referring to the attorney, Gary Dean, (laughs) and they grab him and they start dragging him out of the courtroom. And he's like, wait, not that guy. Like, (laughs) Totally sounds like a cartoon. It totally does. That's hysterical. And I'm sure that this attorney was indignant about it because he seems like he was probably all blustering. Yeah, he probably thought he was the big man. Exactly. The big man. So anyway, so Gary Dean insinuates himself into the case and becomes Stafford's attorney of record for three months. And then he says, hey, judge, you got to let me go because they're not paying my fees. So the money that the brother-in-law had said he would pay didn't realize just how quickly that would add up. Probably. Exactly. Now, after that, another attorney came into the case. Exactly. It was a man named Garvin Isaacs. And he actually had notoriety because a couple of years before this, there was a huge case that happened in Oklahoma yes. of three Girl Scouts mm-hmm. who had been killed. He represented the defendant in this case. So he already had notoriety. He was already right. in the newspapers. He was, another, he was a big man on campus. He was referred to as a flamboyant attorney. So I'm assuming it was big drama all the time. Probably, yeah. He announced that he was going to be representing Stafford going forward And one week later, Stafford was actually charged with the five additional murder counts that Mm -hmm. we weren't aware of why those were held off. Right. That's when he was charged with them. One week after that, Garvin Isaacs withdrew from the case. He's like, you know, (laughs) this sounds really hard. It's going to be harder than I thought. Exactly. I think he said the same thing. Oh, the family's not paying me. Right. He did. He said the same thing. But it drives me crazy. These attorneys who come in, they get their five seconds of fame and then they leave the defendant to be like, whatever. Right. Go back to the public defender. So what happens? The public defender who was originally signed to Stafford gets reassigned back to the case. Right. But wait, there's more. Uh Uh-huh. There always is. (laughs) Always is. After T. Hurley Jordan, the public defender, went back to be with Mm -hmm. Stafford, Stafford. enter J. Malone Brewer. I don't know if that's a Oklahoma thing (laughs) with the first initial. I don't know. But I'm not going by my middle name, so I won't do it. (laughs) But Brewer shows up. And he now says that he has been hired by the family again, and he is going to defend Stafford on the six first-degree murder charges from the Sirloin Stockade. And he was the last guy, right? He, he actually was. was. He, he carried everything through. For both sets of murders. Mm-hmm. Jury selection began on Monday, October 8th, 1979, almost 15 months after the six Sirloin Stockade employees were murdered. Seven women and five men, plus two alternates, were selected to hear the first-degree murder trial of Roger Stafford. Oklahoma County Judge Charles L. Owens, who was presiding, sequestered the jurors. 
Testimony began with the prosecution's first 11 witnesses testifying about the discovery of the six victims who were shot during the robbery, as well as autopsy data and other technical evidence uncovered by investigators. Associate Chief Medical Examiner Dr. Fred Jordan, who performed the autopsies on the six victims, testified that 16-year-old Terry Horst was shot at least four times, with two of the bullets entering the top of her head. He further testified that all six victims died of gunshot wounds to the head. Roger Stafford's estranged wife, Verna, was a witness for the prosecution. Verna testified that she saw Stafford and his late brother, Harold, murder the six sirloin stockade employees during the July 16th robbery. She said Stafford became enraged by the taunts of the restaurant's assistant manager, Louis Sicarius, who kept telling Stafford he could not understand why people could not work for their own money instead of taking it from others. Mr. Zacharias also told Stafford that the three of them would be caught, and when they were, Mr. Zacharias would make sure that their names were run into the ground. Because it shows that your reputation is everything. Right. Verna testified that Stafford was furious and called his brother Harold a coward until he agreed to help Stafford shut them all up. Verna then saw both men begin firing into the freezer. Verna's testimony was the only thing that linked Stafford to the crimes. There were no fingerprints or any other physical evidence that was found connecting Stafford to any of the killings or the guns that were used. So, Kath, were Verna and her husband separated? Like, did they talk about the relationship at all? Yeah, they did, a little bit. And it was very fraught with anger, and they didn't like each other, and they yelled at each other. There was actually a thought by many of the family that she was having an affair with his brother, Harold. Interesting. So when they split, they would split and not see each other for months at a time. Mm -hmm. And then they would both date other people, but then they would get back together, I'm assuming for the kids, and I'm going to use for the kids in quotes. Right. But there was just a lot of tension, a lot of unhappiness between them always. No love lost. No love lost. When defense attorney Brewer cross-examined Verna, he raised the possibility that Verna and Harold Stafford had committed the robbery with a third person, but not his client. Although Verna insisted she was not involved in the murders, Brewer also brought up the changes Verna made to her accounts of what happened on the night of the murders. In early statements to the police, she insisted she was only the driver of the car, But at trial, she testified that her husband put a gun in her hand and forced her to shoot one of the guns into the freezer. Under cross-examination, Verna admitted to lying many times to the police regarding her role in the murders. Brewer then asked her if she was lying then or was she lying now. Verna insisted that she was telling the truth this time. After the district attorney rested his case, Roger Stafford took the stand in his own defense. Ooh. Exactly. <laughs> what, what is it? Arrogant or innocent? Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> and Roger denied that he participated in any way in the murders of the six steakhouse employees. He testified that he was drunk on the hood of a car in the Tulsa, Oklahoma neighborhood where he was living, but not... 100 miles away in Oklahoma City with his brother and his estranged wife. Stafford further testified that he drank a bottle of rum that day and fought with Verna before she drove off at about 4 p.m. 
He said he did not see her again for 10 hours. However, he was unable to present any alibi witnesses. There were two other witnesses from the Holiday Inn in Tulsa where Stafford, his wife, and brother were staying in the days after the steakhouse murders. One witness said they overheard Stafford arguing with his wife about the killings, and he supposedly told Verna that she was in as much trouble as he was. Stafford's supervisor discredited that testimony because he was able to prove that Stafford was at work at the time the witnesses said he was arguing with his wife in the motel parking lot. On Wednesday, October 17, 1979, nine days after the trial began, the jury deliberated for 27 minutes before finding Roger Dale Stafford guilty of six first-degree murder charges in the 1978 mass murder of six workers at the Sirloin Stockade Steakhouse in Oklahoma City. 27 minutes. I don't want to go to a jury there. It shocks me that they didn't sit and go, you know what? This is really, really short. Let's hang out here for a few more minutes and just pretend. Let's give it 45 minutes. Let's make it respectable. After a further 53 minutes of deliberation, Mm -hmm. the jury recommended the death sentence for all six convictions. Again, maybe wow. just give it a little more time. You were close to an hour. Exactly. Could you not have just come on, waited a couple on. minutes? Come on, you could have put seven more minutes in. <laughs> exactly. Before dismissing the jurors, Judge Owens told them he sincerely believed justice was done and set formal sentencing for the following week. On the afternoon of the conviction, McLean County District Attorney Kay Huff announced that she filed three first-degree murder counts against Stafford for the murders of Melvin, Linda, and Ricky Lorenz. A week after Stafford was found guilty of the steakhouse murders, Judge Owens sentenced him to die by lethal injection. Although the judge gave a date for the sentence to be carried out, Stafford filed an appeal, so the execution was stayed. Five months after the steakhouse convictions, trial began in McLean County on the three first-degree murder charges for the Lorenz family. Verna Stafford was again the key prosecution witness and testified that she posed as a stranded motorist in the middle of the night to lure the Lorenzes to pull over to the side of the road. She admitted that it was her idea to rob a passing motorist, but insisted that it was her husband who fired the fatal shots. So, Kath, Verna did testify further about Ricky being in the camper. They did not know he was there when Melvin and Linda first pulled over. Okay. But when the shots rang out, it must have woken him up. You said that you thought he was probably sleeping in the cab. It sounds like that was true. Right. So Ricky woke up and started calling to his parents. So according to Verna, Roger and Harold jumped in this truck and drove it about a half mile down the road because they wanted to leave the crime scene, right? They didn't know if anybody had seen them. They didn't want to be right exactly there when they were doing this. Verna said Roger got out of the truck cut a hole in the screen of a window that was on the camper shell. Like on the side of the camper on shell. On the side of the camper shell. Okay. Stuck his gun in this hole and just started randomly firing. Ah, oh, geez. So she said he fired about 10 shots. Now, there are some inconsistencies and some things that aren't explained. Mm-hmm. So for instance, we know that they dragged Ricky out of the camper shell, right? Because not only was there blood on the tailgate, but he was on the side of the road. And Vernal, did she testify that that occurred, she did. right? Okay. But it never came out how neither of the dogs were hit. They looked like they were mutts, but they were big dogs. They were not quite German Shepherd size, but probably 60, 70 pound dogs. Right. So the big dogs were in there when the shots were randomly fired, but they never got hit. And they also didn't jump out of the back of the truck when they opened the cab to get Ricky out. 
Nor bite the people, apparently. Nor bite them, exactly. Or jump out and run away, or... I still yeah. don't know how they missed the bullets. Yeah. I honestly think that what Verna said was BS. What I think happened is that they're like, come on, come on, little man, come on out. I agree. I think they executed him essentially. Right. Like right there at the edge of the camper yeah, and pulled his body out. That's what right. I think. Your mom and dad are hurt, but we're yeah, going to take you to like them. Some horrible yeah, thing something like, like that. that. Yeah. I, I agree with you. Yeah. Ten days after trial began, Roger Stafford was found guilty and sentenced to die by lethal injection. The jury of seven women and five men deliberated for one hour and 24 minutes on his guilt and an additional hour and 15 minutes on his sentence. So a little bit more respectable. The following week, Oklahoma District Attorney Andrew Coates announced that Verna Stafford would be charged for her role in the murders. The next day... Verna pleaded guilty to two counts of second-degree murder, one for Linda Lorenz and one for Terry Horst. She received two concurrent sentences of 10 years to life in prison. Which means the sentences were running at the same time, not one on top of the other. Yeah, back to back. Nine years later, in an August 9, 1989 article in the Daily Oklahoman by journalist Nolan Clay, Verna was scheduled to be resentenced. The Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals previously released three other murderers with identical sentences to Verna and said that the indeterminate sentencing was improper. The indeterminate sentence being, hey, maybe it's 10 years, maybe it's life. Verna hoped she was going to be released from prison after she had appealed her sentences. Instead, Judge Freeman gave her the maximum possible punishment of two consecutive life terms after hearing two days of testimony about her role in the nine murders that occurred in 1978. The judge told her, I have not seen anything you have done about your moral life, your problems, and I would wager that there is one of the hottest corners of hell vacant with your name right above it and they're waiting for you. And you need to do something about that. Um, are they supposed to proselytize A lot of judges do. A lot from the pulpit. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) A lot of judges do. The judge also said, I do not know what the pardon and parole board will do for you in the future, but it would be my fervent hope that you never get out. I think you have forfeited the right to live in our society. Okay, that I agree with. Yeah. Verna remains in the Mabel Bassett Correctional Center in McLeod, Oklahoma. She has had several parole hearings since her resentencing, but has not been given parole for either life sentence. The Oklahoma County District Attorney and family members of the nine victims continue to fight her being released from prison. On May 2nd, 1995, more than 16 years after being found guilty for the murders of the Lorenz family, Roger Stafford was given an execution date of July 1st, 1995. All of his appeals were exhausted in that case. Stafford's appeals regarding the steakhouse murders were still pending, but the execution date for murdering the Lorenz family remained. Stafford's defense attorney firmly believed in his innocence, and he also believed that Verna was using him as a scapegoat. Four last-minute efforts to stop the execution were denied. A decision by the United States Supreme Court not to hear the case came at about 10 p.m. on June 30th. Roger Dale Stafford was executed by lethal injection and pronounced dead at 12.30 a.m. on Saturday, July 1st, 1995. 
family members of Stafford's victims were at the prison but were unable to watch the execution take place because Oklahoma state law prohibited it. Dennis Lorenz, the brother of Melvin Lorenz, said, What Roger Stafford got was far too easy for what he put these people through. Stafford got what he had coming for 17 years. I thought at the very end that Stafford would probably break down. He never did. He died like a man, something that he never was. Jason Lorenz, who is 12-year-old Ricky Lorenz's cousin, said, Ricky was my age. You cannot even describe the feeling. It's an emptiness. When you spend so much time with someone and then they're gone, it's like losing an arm. You learn how to live with it, but it's still missing. That is so sad. I know. What a thing for a child to have to comprehend. Frank Freeman, the brother of one of the men killed at the steakhouse, said he believed justice had taken too long. I am relieved that it is all over. I have forgiven him, but I do know that he will not enter heaven. Stafford's death was anticipated for a long time in the state of Oklahoma because the killings had been the largest mass murder in the state at that time. But several people connected to the execution noted that it lost some of its significance 10 weeks prior. On April 19, 1995, the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City was bombed in an act of domestic terrorism, killing 168 people, including 19 children who were in a daycare on the second floor of the building. There were also almost 700 injured. The bombings replaced Stafford's murders to become the largest mass murder in Oklahoma. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.